very idea, a philosophy podcast. Hello, everyone. It's the end of July here in Japan, and the coronavirus, the coronavirus, the coronavirus numbers are growing in this country.、Uh, it was quite under control for a while.、Uh, there was a handful of cases in the whole country. Culturally, as a rule, people tend to be, you know, keep a relative social distance from each other here. They're not the type to hug. And、uh, they wear masks with、uh, great aplomb. Whenever they feel sick, or you know, even just for prevention, a very cautious bunch. But the、uh, government they kept the bars open. There was a cluster there in the bar district, in the, in the drinking district.、Uh, they could have closed them、uh, because it was confined to a rather small neighborhood or district in Tokyo, but they didn't because they, you know, didn't want to hurt the economy. And we got what we have here now. So that's today. To get my mind off that, let's play a game. This time, no quote, all question. In this question, Hollywood meets Oxford because we are talking about director Terrence Malick. Malick is that artistically inclined director who gave us、uh, Badlands with、uh, Martin Sheen, The Thin Red Line, the World War II movie in the Pacific, and The Tree of Life with Brad Pitt. You know, all those things with、uh, meditative voiceovers and philosophical undertones, or is that overtones?、Uh, never know quite with that、uh, term. Terrence Malick, you know, his background is in philosophy. He got a BA in philosophy from Harvard. Very smart guy. And then went on to pursue his doctorate at Oxford by focusing and、uh, tying together the concepts of world, the concepts of world in Kierkegaard, Heidegger, and Wittgenstein. So that's、uh, no small feat you know, to tie those three thinkers together, especially Wittgenstein with Heidegger and Kierkegaard. You know, that's two different worlds of philosophy. And he was looking at the concept of world, which you know, perhaps you can see it bleeding into his films. But you know, get this. Due to A dispute with his professor, he left Oxford without his degree. You know, he was on quite a trajectory going to Harvard, then going to Oxford, but he left without his degree. So, my question was who was this pugilistic professor that Malik disagreed with? Who was this guy he got into a fight with that was so bad that made him come home in a flood of tears and a sedan chair? That's a hint. That's a hint from that professor's book. Now, this guy, this professor who、uh, Malik got into a fight with, He talked a lot about ghosts in the machine. So, who was this professor that Malik got into a fight with? Terrence Malik. Okay, let me count down five, four, three, two, one.、Yeah? Okay, it's none other than Gilbert Riley, or Gilbert Ryle, I've never figured out how to pronounce that name, the British author of The Concept of Mind, the、uh, book that、uh, was a takedown of Descartes.、Um, Gilbert Riley,、uh, I don't know what the fight was about, but、uh, Malik should、uh, perhaps thank him. Malik, uh, uh, things turned out okay for Malik.、Uh, also, it's, you know, on Malik's part, it's pretty ballsy to argue with your famous prof. You know, Gilbert Ryle has quite the reputation in the philosophical world. He's a giant, well, not a giant, but near giant. You know, I couldn't do that. My rhetorical style is more nodding politely. 
uh, you know, just generally agreeable guy. I guess Malik's pretty, you know, pretty certain of himself. Perhaps that's why he's a famous director. Well, and the man, you know, he makes beautiful films. So, and uh, I guess he just really believes in his vision. Anyway, uh, Terrence Malik is a philosophy background. And if you watch his movies, I guess that kind of makes sense. Now, okay, thank you for listening to that. Okay, today we are going to continue looking at Wittgenstein's idea of the primitive simple. Last time we showed how the complexity of ordinary language could be broken down to its primitive parts and logically analyzed. At least, you know, according to some, the uh, logical positivists, for example, or uh, Wittgenstein, the early Wittgenstein, that is. Uh, ordinary language is misleading for these people. Uh, this reduction to smaller parts and subsequent logical analysis can clean up uh, these misunderstandings, according to them. Dirty, dirty, ordinary language. Shame on you. Not only was ordinary language confusing, but a lot of people from this school of thought believe that our reliance on ordinary language caused the confusion that resulted in philosophical problems. So these confusions in ordinary language were the origin of philosophical problems. So, for example, let's say, you know, the problem between free will and determinism. According to the logical positivists, all we have to do is throw it under the old linguistic microscope, clean up the language in any misleading terms, and boom, we realize it's not a problem at all. That it was a mere pseudo-problem, pseudo with that uh, enigmatic silent P, or you know, let's say fake problem. With um, a sharp linguistic analysis, all those age-old philosophical problems that tie our heads into knots, well, they just disappear. And we can presumably all be in agreement on the answer. Well, that's the dream anyway. Quite ambitious and uh, quite, you know, exciting. Also, in this episode, we'll look into the idea of Wittgenstein's picture theory of language that he outlined in the Tractatus. Yeah, we'll look back at that, you know. So let's get into that right now, a little uh, rundown of that, which you talked about last time. So pictures, sentences are uh, composites, and its elements, names, are correlated with objects of reality. It's a grand empirical project. That's the key idea here. Names are the docking port from language to reality. This empiricism grounds the whole thing. We'll construct a logical language so atomic, so close to reality, that the words become translucent and reveal the objects that they represent. Or, you know, that's the hope. But here's the problem. Remember that time that you were constructing, you know, some furniture from Ikea and you had it all completed and you were about ready to congratulate yourself on being not only an intellectual but also a bit of a handyman or handywoman. But you go to throw the box that it came in out in the garbage and you hear this little piece swishing around at the bottom. Oh, you forgot a piece. And that piece... That piece you forgot 
gives the whole structure of the furniture its integrity. It holds the whole thing together. And you just want to throw the whole thing out instead of starting again. Well, that happened to Wittgenstein, but with his notion of a pure, beautiful, atomic language. Mm. The problem that this relationship that holds between the object and a word that form the structure of Wittgenstein's system itself, it cannot fit into Wittgenstein's system. Oops. The relationship between word and object is not itself empirical. I can see a bird fly into a tree, you know, an empirical relation, but I can never lay witness with my two eyes, apologies to the pirates out there, how a word matches to an object. It's not like there's a string connecting the two. Language, according to the picture theory, is the totality of propositions and these propositions relate to states of affairs in the world. So, anything meaningful relates or represents a state of affairs. It is empirical. But, you know, consider the sentence. Proposition P pictures a possible state of affairs S. This proposition does indeed relate to a possible state of affairs. But showing this relationship itself is not empirical. The general nature of this is not. The general nature of the statement itself is not empirical. The picturing relationship itself is necessary. It is logical by being based in a rationally built system. And that's where it derives its justification. Not with the old Isies, yeah, not with the peepers. Empirical relations are contingent. They could be otherwise. Um, so, um, now there's nothing wrong with uh, something being logically justified. So, you know, this relationship between word and object is a logical relationship. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with logical justification. It's a form of justification like any other. Unless you've been walking around town saying that all and only empirical sentences are meaningful. In the positivist case, because they wanted to be friends with science, and Wittgenstein probably more in an effort for a simplistic beauty. Well, if you've been trumpeting the praises of an exclusive empiricism in your system, then you've got a problem and one of your own making when you can't fit the theory inside the empiricism. Hmm? Consider these sentences from Wittgenstein, from the Tractatus itself. A picture is true if it agrees with reality, false if it does not. What a picture represents, it does so independently of its truth or falsity. In order to tell whether a picture is true or false, we must compare it with reality. No picture is true a priori. There is an internal relation between a picture and a possible state of affairs that it represents. The logical form that a picture and what it represents have in common and the internal relation that holds between them can only be shown. Can only be shown. It's an important distinction. So Wittgenstein's picturing relationship represents a necessary connection between a sentence and a state of affairs. But this sentence cannot be a well-formed proposition, because well-formed propositions are only true a posteriori. Since 
Only what is in the world can be described. Anything that is higher is excluded. And that higher stuff includes the theory, any theory. Uh, but this theory in particular, that is the outline of the picture theory. You know, sorry if that was rambling, but when, you know, I just want to make sense of something, I like to go around in circles a bit. So you know, hopefully you could understand it, but uh, maybe you could call it my hermeneutic ramble. So we are left with a system that all meaningful sentences are true a posteriori, but it is built all on top of an a priori theory, a logical relationship theory. So that's rough for Wittgenstein. That's some bad, bad news. But Wittgenstein, you know, he kind of embraced uh, this mysteriousness for a while. Um, you know, he said, we can talk about this. We can, uh, we can talk, we can, we cannot say meaningfully in words, this theory, but we can show it. You know, this theory can be shown, but it cannot be said. Uh, he, you know, he had some strong religious tendencies in spite of his plans to bring metaphysics down. Um, and he was content for a while to leave a mystery, especially since he was the author of said mystery, perhaps. In his own words, he gave us a ladder, Wittgenstein's ladder. In his words, my propositions serve, my theory, my propositions serve as elucidations in the following way. Anyone who understands me eventually recognizes them as nonsensical when he has used them as steps to climb beyond them. He must, so to speak, throw away the ladder after he has climbed up it. So he must throw away the ladder after he has climbed up it. So to sum up in, in a certain sort of way, Wittgenstein's words, uh, what can be shown in theory cannot be said meaningfully in life, I guess. That is what cannot be formulated in sayable, sensical propositions. These propositions can only be shown. This applies, for example, to the logical form of the world, the pictorial form, which show themselves in the form of contingent propositions in the symbolism and logical propositions. Even the unsayable, the metaphysical, the ethical, aesthetic propositions of philosophy belong in this group, which Wittgenstein finally describes as things that cannot be put into words. They make themselves manifest. They are what is mystical. So we have the empirical sentences. They are the only meaningful sentences. We have theoretical sentences that are not meaningful sentences, but we must use them to make sense of how our words connect to the world. And then once we have understood this, we must throw away the ladder, mm, Wittgenstein's ladder. Uh, just this quick aside, I've always wondered what he would have wanted to show with ethics. You know, I, I like ethics. I'm kind of interested in ethics. I'm always kind of wondering what Wittgenstein would say here. Logical positivists are, um, you know, uh, they followed along the Tractatus very closely. Uh, they, who were very much followers of Wittgenstein, the earlier Wittgenstein, said that there was no room in philosophy for any prescriptive ethics. There's no uh, room for I, you should sentences. Yeah? Any attempt to do so would lead you into creating a metaphysics, which was a no-no, a no-go. But Wittgenstein and his saying, showing distinction, left some wiggle room for ethics to slide in, and at least in the showing sense, you know, perhaps we could show it, but we couldn't say it.
you know, the way he does with his uh, logical linguistic theory. So, uh, so yeah, in at least, in the, uh, but this uh, line of thought is a bit leading anyway, and it probably gets away from what Wittgenstein was very concerned about, although he was a very ethical person. He might not have thought it was very philosophically relevant. Anyway, I'm off topic here and talking a lot of speculative nonsense. So just food for thought, and maybe this food is junk food of the junk food variety. That's it for this episode. We'll get into Wittgenstein's reincarnation as a more sociologically oriented philosopher in the next episode and show how how he switches from simples to samples. Anyway, as always, thank you for listening. On the very idea, a philosophy podcast.